Chapter 3 On the Nature of Growth There is a story from Chinese philosophy which tells the tale of a prince charging a talented artisan with the production of a single artificial leaf. After three long years of work, the artisan completed his work and the leaf was hung on the tree. While the prince was pleased with the work, the philosopher Lao Tzu made the statement that if it took nature three years to create a single leaf, very few trees would have leaves on them. Though, in context, this story actually tells of the supremacy of nature, I wish to be able to apply this toward our own growth as people and as Christians. For a moment, let us consider how we attempt to do this very thing in our lives. Imagine you have a young apple tree that one has grown from a seed. There is a moment of pride as we approach the tree and see it begin to grow, but there is a moment of panic as the sun comes out and the heat of the day begins to bear down on the tree. Now this is a very young tree, so it doesn't have as many leaves as one may expect for a fully grown apple tree. In a moment of impatience with the tree itself, we attempt to scrap together artificial means to protect the tree and disguise them as natural means. Allow me to clarify my metaphor and say that these artificial leaves are our coping mechanisms that truly contribute nothing to our growing. Furthermore, once we have these artificial leaves fashioned, we have focused so much time on these things that we think will protect the tree that we have forgotten the tree itself. We have built up defenses against the heat of the sun, but since we have focused on putting time and effort into an artificial front, the tree has been forsaken and left to wither in the heat of the day. Then what is the solution? If I cannot create artificial shade for the tree, what am I to do? First, remember that there is no condemnation of artificial shade, but rather I implore you to recognize the artificial shade for what it is, artificial. The shade is synthetic, and it is not truly part of the tree. A tree grows its leaves in the summertime for the same reason that it loses its leaves in the winter. In the summertime, the leaves help absorb nourishing sunlight and to protect its roots from the sun on the days when it is harsh. It loses its leaves in the winter as it pulls its energy inward to protect itself from the bitter cold. Even as the tree drops its leaves, they are not fully done away with. The leaves on the ground protect the roots once more from the cold and the snow, and in the spring as the leaves decompose they provide nutrients for the tree to be healthy to grow more in the summertime. A synthetic leaf is not dropped as it is fixed in place upon the tree, doomed to be in a single state forever being of no use in the winter, and blocking the growth of true leaves in the summer. Thus, for those who have collected a number of these leaves, one must accept that they need to be pruned from the tree, done away with to make way for healthy growth. Yet sometimes it is difficult to see which leaves are real and which are fake as we continue these seasons of winter and summer. This is why community and wisdom are integral to the growth of the tree. Community provides shade for the sapling as they are needing the protection which they cannot fully provide themselves yet. In this same way, the forest surrounds the sapling. The leaves that the fully grown trees drop help nourish the sapling. The branches of these trees protect it from the heat of the sun. This is the beauty of community in growth. We surround ourselves with people who are both more mature than us and less mature so that we may both aid and be aided in our time of growing. 
Secondarily, someone else sometimes needs to approach the tree to discern which leaves are real and which are artificial. We tend to not recognize the artificial as it does stand to benefit us in certain regards. In the harsh sun, we see that they can help provide shade, and in the bitter winter times, we look at the lovely leaves which have not aged and think to ourselves, at least there is still some life left in me. However, these artificial leaves catch the snow and they weigh down our branches. They cause us undue weight and they rob us of the protection that ought to actually be present. Sometimes someone needs to approach the tree and examine it, seeing what is real and what is artificial, and helping us to do away with what is not truly part of us. This process can be, and is indeed almost always, painful. Yet it is the only way we can begin to do away with those things which must be rid of. We must move on from the mindset that we are nothing without those leaves, and if indeed we are to actually grow, then we must be pruned. The tree is worth growing. The tree is worth nourishing. If the tree is ever going to help provide growth for saplings, then it must grow, and it must be a healthy tree. Now, to switch to a different metaphor for the purpose of examining how to change our minds concerning the worth of the self, imagine planting a garden. This garden will one day, if growth truly comes, be filled with flowers or fruits or vegetables. However, when we look at ourselves, we hate who we are and cannot wait to be who we are in a day, a month, a year, or even a decade. With this garden in mind, when one plants a seed, we await eagerly to see if it will grow. When we see a sprout, we feel joy. We do not look at the sprout and think, why are you not growing fruit yet? I want my results now. Rather, we recognize that if we nourish this little sprout, if we show patience to it, if we seek to provide an environment suitable for growth, then maybe there will be a fruit one day. Even still, once the plant has grown and begins to flower, we do not show anger toward it. We feel joy as it is showing the signs that our hopes and efforts are still working. When it does finally show its fruit, there is joy once more. Even if it does not yield as much fruit as we had hoped, there is still joy. We may learn for the next time we seek to grow fruit. So that we may continue to feel such joy as there is always this life present in growth. You see, in any manner of growth, patience is necessary but gratitude for what is seen is still integral. We are not commanded to hate ourselves. We may be called to hate our sin, but for those in Christ you are no longer identified with your sinful nature. Your identity in Christ is an inherent and an integral part of yourself. Your work, your life, your conduct, these are circumstantial attributes which are informed and guided by your inherent identity. Yet there are still times in which the old identity still informs our actions. In these times, we must hold on to that which is true and real and strive forward. For many of us, we have grown so used to acting in accordance with that old identity, and this reflects in our conduct. It is not even those things which are easily able to be seen as sinful, but those smaller and more subtle things. This is the way I have always done this thing, is often a mindset is, that is carried into our common interactions with our internal world and our external world. We strive to honor God in all that we do, even in our base instincts such as eating and drinking, we pursue such. 
We are selfish and pragmatic in the way that we use our time and relationships. We either isolate ourselves from the possibility of community to avoid being hurt, or we desire to fully take advantage of those around us. Even still, these inclinations are not always fully apparent to us. Rather, they are integrated in how we think. It is these things which I mean as the smaller and subtle actions. Those things we are not always aware of in ourselves. If you would allow me to digress for a moment, when God created man, he was good. God looked on his creation and said that it was good. Man is created for goodness and to act in goodness. Yet when sin entered man's heart, it was wholly corrupted, and all of man's actions are then rendered subject to that fall. Man still desires to be good in a sense, but has no idea where this goodness is to be found. He seeks after his own goodness, often at the expense of others. Man's mandate was to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Yet, man in his sin still acts in accordance with such an inclination, but such is affected by the sinfulness of the heart. He is fruitful and seeks after his own gain. He multiplies as his sexual desire is increased to an obscene extent, and seeks to sow as many seeds as he possibly is able to. He subdues the earth by destroying that which is put under his feet. He has dominion over the earth as he not only seizes uninhabited lands, but the lands of his neighbor for himself. All of these are artificially synthesized forms of something that was meant to be good, and we have perverted them. There is no such thing as evil that is also new. Every evil is just a perverted thing that was once good. These perverted things may resemble what was once good in form, but they are no longer the good thing anymore. These are artificial leaves. An artificial leaf is not subject to growth or death, for death does not come to something which was never truly alive. These things must be seen for what they are, which is a hindrance to you and the community in which you exist. Every good leaf is meant to participate in the community as you grow. Righteousness grows organically and beautifully. It is passed on to the younger through participation and instruction. This righteousness protects the younger as they do not need to be subjected to the artificial which is undue anger, deception, pride, or those things which are sinful and destructive. To a large degree, these false leaves I speak about are coping mechanisms that we develop through unhealthy means, and the fruit which grows cyclically is our mental and emotional well-being. The key to this emotional well-being when perceiving such fruit is gratitude. We recognize that we have our part to play in the process as we strive to not only subdue that which is evil in our heart, but we attempt to provide a healthy place for goodness to grow. And gratitude stems from the fact that we do not provide the growth. We look on our growth and we are not only happy to see such growth, but we are also grateful to the one who has provided the growth. That is God who does the growing, and that is God who will be faithful to see the plant bloom every spring and fruit in the summer. Be patient and be gentle with this plant, because while it has survived much, it has a long way to go. God has shown a beautiful and radical love so that growth will take place and recognize that the fruit has a purpose. And recall that this fruit is the first sign of what God is doing. This is a call to be joyous. 
When the plant dies or yields unhealthy fruit, we show remorse and we adjust and learn so that we may continue to grow in Christ-likeness. Coping Mechanisms In previous iterations of this book, I left the previous section with only an understanding of the fact that there were false or fixed leaves and that there were natural leaves. I didn't provide much detail into the nature of what these leaves looked like. Since then, it may be a benefit to some as an evaluative tool to be made more aware of what these false leaves or coping mechanisms may look like and what they are actually good for in the short term versus more long-term effects in a detrimental way to our health. These descriptions are provided so that you may know that it is time to do away with these coping mechanisms. A leaf is supposed to be something that is meant to be shed after its season is done. It is meant to do its job and then drop to the ground. Before any discussion on what these coping mechanisms may be, we must become familiar with two terms for the sake of this discussion. Those are exteroception and interoception. Exteroception is the awareness of sensory experiences which are being taken in from the external world. These include sight, smell, taste, sound, temperature, and the like. It is through exteroception that we perceive things outside of ourselves. Contrarywise, interoception is the means by which we perceive those things which are inside ourselves. This function measures where our body is, keeps track of gut feelings, headaches, pain, pleasure, self-awareness, etc. These coping mechanisms may also be understood as either an excess or of self-indulgence or an excess of self-denial. Hypervigilance. This is the state of mind wherein one is constantly aware of one's own surroundings, yet it lacks proper balancing of perception. Oftentimes, this particular mechanism is associated with anxiety or paranoia. It is not necessarily being aware of everything that is going on around you, but one is seeking to avoid any potential danger that may be akin to previous sources of danger. This may be assumed to be an excess of exteroception, but in actuality, it is an excess of interoception imposed upon the external world. In other words, the attributes of being hyper-aware of potential threats and living in light of the possibility of those threats is not a greater understanding of the world, but it is rather us imposing upon the external world what we believe to be true of it. The benefits of this particular attribute in the short term is being able to spot danger, and it really does help. Imagine walking through the jungle where you know there may be tigers. You hear a sound, and suddenly every detail becomes perfectly clear. You can hear every stick break and see every movement. This really is helpful when you are in the jungle, but holds a massive hazard for those times when you have made your way out of the jungle. I would propose this particular system is built around the prospect of pattern recognition, quite literally in the case of the stripes of the tiger. Our brains begin to piece data together in order to avoid being attacked. We rely on external cues, which then trigger an internal response. A raised voice, a loud noise, a particular bodily pose, a snarky comment, a series of events that all build up to an educated guess that something is about to happen. It is good to be aware of potential danger and to keep an eye out for it. But in those instances where our perception of the potential overrules our knowledge of what is true, remind yourself of what you know to be true. If you are dealing with someone close and your feelings of vigilance begin to crop up, don't be afraid to do some digging, but live in light of grace both toward yourself 
and toward them. Once you have emerged from the danger, recognize that you are out of the jungle. The trick is not being able to spot the tiger. The trick is it being able to spot when you are in the jungle. This can often be accomplished with the aid of a mentor who can come alongside the individual and show them how to recognize when they are in the jungle. Emotional Repression This is the mechanism wherein we suppress our body's natural emotional reactions to external stimuli. It is not that we do not feel emotions in this state, but rather we suppress particular ones for the sake of being able to focus on what we consider more important or more pertinent. You must consider attention and perception as finite resources when considering the way in which we experience the world. In regard to the previous terms of interoception versus exteroception, certain traumatic or chronically stressful situations can lead us to focusing more on the external in exchange for a neglect of the internal. To use the image of the jungle once more, imagine you have been hiking in the woods and you twisted your ankle. It's begun to swell and hurt, and so you hobble along the path. However, you hear a noise and you think it might just be the tiger. You begin to run. You don't notice your swollen ankle anymore, as the only thing that you are processing is getting to safety. You are able to keep running until you are far away from where you thought you saw stripes. Before you know it, you slow down and you start to feel the pain once again. The problem is that what was a simple strain has become a tear because too much force has been exerted upon it for too long a period of time. This same process not only happens physically, but also emotionally. Pain is not merely indicative of physical distress, but emotional. We will choke back tears and stuff down anger because we cannot actually afford to feel it. We have to shift our perception to outside of ourselves instead of paying attention to what is going on inside of ourselves. This is helpful in the short term, however the pain will return so much greater once one slows down as they perceive themselves to be entering a safe space. Even as we repress our emotions or our needs, they begin to shine through against our will. We do not wish for others to see how hungry, sleep-deprived, depressed, angry, or otherwise we actually are, but these needs, when not satisfied, will make their presence known as the ankle becomes more unsteady while we continue to run, and the ankle will falter. If you are realizing that you may be repressing your needs, but you still feel like you are in danger, this is my recommendation. Find someone to lean on. Allow yourself to take weight off the ankle to be able to nurse it. Feel the pain, but do not immediately put weight on it. You will need to rehabilitate it for some time, and things you used to be capable of in the past may be more difficult than they used to be. But functionality will return. I will insist you find someone to help bear your burdens. Agreeableness versus Aggression this is not so much a coping mechanism, but rather when one is in excess, these are usually indicative of one needing to do away with one of the prior two categories. This is a mechanism by which we are able to advocate for our own needs. Agreeableness is typical whether one will go along with a certain standard of treatment, even if it conflicts with our own needs or wants. This ranges as we are willing to put up with various things and different categories of treatment. We may feel totally disagreeable to a measure of poor treatment in one area, but perfectly agreeable to a measure of poor treatment elsewhere. I bring this up as it is not a black and white standard by which one is willing to say, I am willing to put up with 
this much of something, but no more. Aggression, on the other hand, is the capacity by which we declare to others and to ourselves that our needs must be met. If need be, please return to this section once you have read the chapter on the tyrant and the coward. However, I will give a brief foretaste of how these two types of men may demonstrate these two different traits. The coward is a man who is more likely to be agreeable, as there is the hope that if he just goes along with it, what is demanded of him, then there is no room for failure or hurt. The coward will rarely advocate for himself, and this leads to an intense bitterness which rears its ugly head in how he serves and leads other people. Meanwhile, the tyrant will be more aggressive in an effort to show that his needs must always be met and satisfied. He will demonstrate aggression instead of assertiveness. The difference being that a man who is assertive does not seek to damage the other person, while aggression will seek to either damage or humiliate the other person. One must seek a balance between the two.